Welcome to episode 146 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Eugene Casey, who served 21 years with the FBI. As a special agent, he used skills acquired from his previous employment as a compliance officer on Wall Street to work white-collar crime matters in the FBI. In this episode, Eugene Casey reviews Operation Utah Powder, a Colombian drug money laundering investigation that resulted in numerous international convictions and for which he received a Distinguished Service Medal from the Salt Lake City Police Department. Later in his career, Eugene Casey received an award from the Department of Justice for spearheading the Salt Lake Olympic bribery investigation. Upon being transferred to the New York office, he supervised the money laundering squad and, ironically, a case that had been spun off from Operation Utah Powder, which resulted in additional indictments and extraditions from Columbia. Eugene Casey also served as the supervisor of the Joint Task Force on Terrorist Finance in Saudi Arabia and was the unit chief for the Eurasian Organized Crime Unit of the Criminal Investigative Division, as well as the Assistant Legal Attaché, ALAT, for the FBI in Paris, France. His last bureau assignment before retiring was as an instructor at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, teaching interviewing and interrogation skills. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. As a matter of fact, this is the second time that we've spoken to Eugene Casey. As you may recall, we also spoke to him on episode 95, where he told us all about his Paris prison meetings with terrorist Carlos de Jackal and interviewing strategies. Before we get to the interview, I just want to remind you that I will be taking two weeks off. I'll post my last episode of the year on December the 20th, but I'll be back on January the 10th. I already have several really great episodes on the shelf ready for 2019. I'll still be active with my blog and my reader team email digest. So if you want to hear from me during that period of time, please make sure that you're a member of my reader team. All you need to do to join my reader team is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com and sign up there or my Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author. Or if you're listening to this on a podcast app that supports links, you can sign up on your phone. When you join my reader team, you get access to my FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI written by the very agents I've interviewed on this podcast. Right now, there's more than 45 books, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. And all of them would make great Christmas presents, including my books, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. And also when you join my reader team, you get the FBI reality checklist. 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, including Pandora. Now here's the show. I am excited to have back on the show Eugene Casey. Hi, Eugene. 
Hi, Jerry. How are you? I am doing great. I want to remind everybody that we last spoke on episode 95, and that's where you were telling us about your time as the ALAT, Assistant Legal Attaché, and the FBI's Paris office, where you had the opportunity to interview several times Carlos the Jackal. Right. Yeah, that was uh, quite an interesting encounter. Yeah, it's been a very popular uh, episode. As a matter of fact, I think we've talked, uh, or I've sent you emails a number of times, people reaching out and, and, and wanting to uh, to talk to you more about that case. Yes, yeah, and uh, there's been some renewed media interest, which is great because that case needs some additional help to get resolved, and I hope it does get resolved at some point, but it's uh, it was the 40-year-old murder of an Israeli diplomat in Maryland, and uh, I know FBI Baltimore is still working on it, and I really hope maybe with the help of some tips from the public, it gets resolved. Well, so do I, so do I. So this time, we're going to talk about an equally fascinating case, and one of the reasons I'm so excited about it, you, you mentioned it briefly at the end of our last interview, but the reason I am really interested is that I have been watching Ozark on Netflix. Have you ever watched the show? I haven't seen it. Well, you got to watch it because it <laughs> is, it's really, it, it kind of sounds like they may have seen this case of yours and used it as inspiration for the TV series. It's about a financial advisor who was in Chicago, who starts laundering money for a drug cartel. And at some point, his wife gets involved with the whole operation too. So I think as people listen to your case review, and they've seen Ozark, they're going to understand, you know, why I'm so excited about this and and also see the familiarities about the uh, about the case and and the TV show. So Ozark on Netflix, you got to watch it. I'll check it out. Okay, cool. So give us a little tease first about what this case involves. And then Mm -hmm. if you could just take us from the very beginning. Okay. Uh, Well, as you said, the case involves drug money laundering uh, involving Colombians. And I did ultimately trace it back to a cartel, but it had very, very humble beginnings. And uh, as you know, we were both white collar crime agents at the get go. And I started on a white collar crime squad in Salt Lake City, Utah. And that's where this case began. It uh, actually started my first week on the job as a total uh, rookie agent. I was given a complaint. Some uh, attorney, local attorney filed a complaint on behalf of some clients. And it was given to me by my training agent. I I don't know if you had a training agent back in the day, but... Oh, definitely. Yeah. Thank thank goodness. (laughs) We don't don't have partners in the FBI, as you know. Uh, Some people in the public don't realize that. We we are individually responsible for our investigations, but we do get training agents in the beginning. So my training agent handed me this complaint, and it had the, you know, the aspects of what we call an advance fee loan scheme, which I know you're familiar with, Jerry. And so my training agent gave me this complaint. It was assigned to me by my supervisor, and he gave it to me with a caveat. He said, he said, my advice is ignore this. <laughs> Don't work it. And he, he gave me actually what were some good reasons. He said, the subject is a foreign national, and the victims are all foreign nationals. Even though a lot of the crime took place in Utah, 
He said, this should be a civil matter. You don't know the details of the loan agreement. You're just going to get sucked into doing free work for some civil attorneys and you're going to waste your time. And, and a prosecutor in Utah won't be interested because it will lack jury appeal because the subject and the victims are foreign nationals. So that's, that's the caveat he gave me his advice. I'm sort of a contrarian by nature. It doesn't sound like you followed his advice. <laughs> no, I didn't. And uh, maybe I'm just a real New Yorker. I don't know. But I, I, I didn't take his advice. I took it as a challenge, actually. And I opened the case. And I eventually started tracking down victims, interviewing victims. And there were quite a few. I, I, I documented at least 11 in detail and interviewed them or, or through their attorneys. And essentially, it was this, this guy named Tomas Martinez in Salt Lake City who had come from, moved there from Spain, but he never gave up his citizenship. So he's a Spanish national living in Salt Lake City. He married a lady from Utah. And I don't know how much you know about the Mormon church, but Salt Lake City is the sort of the headquarters of the Mormon church. And they send missionaries all around the world to preach their faith. And, and it's a kind of a growing experience and a common cultural experience for a lot of Mormons in Utah. So this one lady happened to do her Mormon mission in Spain, and she comes back married to this guy. And based on this case and other cases I worked, I, I, I sensed a pattern of, uh, you know, criminals from overseas getting to the United States by, by doing this, by marrying some unfortunately gullible women, young women, and, and getting their ticket to the United States. So that was his case. He had been a con artist already in Spain, just happened to meet this lady through, through church connections, and he ends up in Salt Lake City. And his fraud, his con, was your typical advance fee loan scheme, which works something like this. He targeted and ran ads in newspapers, and he's targeting small businesses who were in need of loans that they could not get from legitimate banks because they weren't credit worthy. So he would propose to these small businesses, hey, you need a $600,000 loan. He would claim that he had all these investors and he could get it approved. And he'd you know, walk them through all these steps. He'd have them register, uh, incorporate in Utah. And he'd, he'd file a business plan for them. And then he'd say, okay, your loan's been approved by my investor committee. Now you just got to pay me my fee first and then we'll process the loan. And his fee would always be about 10%. So he'd ask for like $60,000 up front. And unfortunately, a lot of these victims would do that because they were so desperate for a capital infusion for their business. They would pay him this $60,000 fee. And he had all these loan agreements and documents. And he would say there was a refundable deposit, like he would reimburse that money if the loan never came through and et cetera, et cetera. You know how these guys work. So he would collect his $60,000 and then the victim, of course, would never get their loan. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, he would give them excuses and give them the runaround and eventually just cut off communication with them. And that was his pattern. So he did that. He first did that in Spain. And when it kind of ran its course there, he moved on to Portugal, Germany. But he mostly stayed out of the United States, even though he was doing this from Salt Lake City, Utah. So I teamed up with a Salt Lake City detective uh, named Alan Sawaya, who's a great guy uh, in their financial crimes unit in Salt Lake. And he helped me work this first phase of the case. And we interviewed a bunch of victims, found them, got their story, documented it. But I had the feeling we weren't on because Mr. Martinez had had seven children, was living in this 
mansion <laughs> in a very nice part of Salt Lake City suburbs. And it just didn't seem right to me. And I knew I didn't have the whole scope of what he was up to. So I decided I wanted to execute a search warrant. So I gathered my probable cause to, to search his office, which was, believe it or not, he had an office inside his attorney's suite of offices. So he, he, he maintained an office inside his lawyer's office. And then he had a home office because by now his scam was kind of running dry and he was running out of money and he owed a lot of, a lot of people money. So he, he, his big fancy office where he conned most of his victims, he was already had stiffed the landlord on the rent and already abandoned that office. So he's left with the home office and this attorney's office. And I, I got the search warrants. We executed the search. And as you know, with financial cases, you, you serve a lot of bank subpoenas. You get a lot of financial documents to try to see what he's up to. And bank subpoenas take a long time. They don't always give you the right documents. And these investigations take a long, long time. So I started this in July of 96. And by the time my search warrant was ready to go, it was about a year and a half later. It was February of 98. I do the search warrant. And just as I'm getting ready to do it, I notice his pattern of financial activity was changing. And it didn't match his normal pattern. Normally, he would get money from his victims, you know, wire transfers from overseas or large checks from victims from overseas, deposit them in his accounts. But just before I executed my search warrant, I noticed he was making cash deposits into his own account. And then he was sending out wire transfers to companies in Miami and Panama, uh, in New York, and it just didn't fit the pattern of his normal scam. So I knew his, whatever he was up to was changing. He had taken, uh, of the 11 victims I had documented, he'd, he had taken them for an average of around $60,000 each. And then the, the dollar value of money moving through his accounts, it, it was hard to tell because what, what he had been doing was drug money laundering. And it just started about six weeks before I, I searched his house, which was good timing on my part. But uh, the dollar value it was hard to estimate then, but it was in the tens of thousands. And so I knew something was up. So when I searched his house, I found in his office a bunch of cash. And being still somewhat of a rookie, I didn't list cash on my list of items to be seized because I wasn't anticipating a whole bunch of cash. So even though I found this cash, I couldn't seize it because <laughs> I didn't write the affidavit the right way. But I did find about $60,000 in cashier's checks, which were all made out to himself. So about 19 different checks worth about 60 grand total, all made out to himself. And I was able to seize those. And it did turn out eventually that that was drug proceeds that he was laundering. And of course, I didn't know that right away. But my, my instinct told me, okay, this, this, this guy's probably laundering money. So... The next step, you know, and he had a, a previous business partner from the loan business, and I, and I found some uh, indications that these guys were back in business again in this new, whatever they're up to now, uh, operation. And his name was Mario Hernandez, and he was a Colombian national living in Utah, and again, someone who had married uh, a woman from Utah who had done a Mormon mission in Colombia. So again, that pattern sort of repeated itself. So these two guys had been business partners in the loan, advance fee loan scheme together. And now it looked like they were doing some kind of financial transactions together again. What was the name of the, the subject from Spain? What was his name again? 
Tomas Martinez. So we have Tomas Martinez, the main initial subject, and his former and, once again, current partner, Mario Hernandez. So the two of them are up to something, and I'm not sure what. But since I seized that $60,000 in cashier's checks, you know, we, we filed a, a forfeiture action on it. And because we had seized it, he, through his attorneys, immediately contested that. He wanted that money back. And that gave me the opportunity to interview him because I wanted to obviously get his side of the story on that. Actually, during the search, I could see him driving back and forth outside uh, on the street outside his house. <laughs> he wasn't going to come in and see us because I think he was afraid we had an arrest warrant for him. But he was, he was uh, quite nervous. So he, he came in with his attorney. And uh, I had an opportunity to interview him and with my partner in that case, Detective uh, Sawaya from the Salt Lake City PD. And the guy was quite a, quite a character. You know, he still had a pretty thick Spanish accent. And his story was kind of all over the place. And of a typical con, he was not very convincing in just about anything he said. But to pin him down on the story of all 11 victims, it took literally... Does about a dozen interviews spread out over a few months, during which his attorney would literally fall asleep. That he would give the, the main explanation he gave, even though I had documented loan agreements signed by him and his victims, he would say these aren't really loans. He said they're actually investing money with me in an agricultural project in Argentina, which made no sense at all because that's not what any of the documents said. But nor, nor any of the victims that I interviewed said that. But given, uh, and during this whole time as I'm interviewing him, I'm getting more and more financial information from subpoenas about what he's up to now. And I see the, the volume of the cash moving through his accounts has exponentially increased to the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And um, I asked him about this and he, he claimed uh, you know, various explanations that made no sense to explain the, the the financial patterns he was exhibiting at that time. So I took this to my prosecutor and I want to indict him for money laundering in addition to the advance fee loan scheme counts, but the prosecutor didn't think I really had enough to prove money laundering. And he, he was probably right. I didn't have enough. I had, I had enough to prove what we call structuring of deposits when you uh, deposit uh, smaller amounts of money to avoid are reporting requirements that are mandated by the federal government. So if you, for instance, walk into a bank and you want to deposit $11,000 in cash, you have to fill out a report explaining the origin of the money. But if you do it for just under $10,000, you don't have to fill out that form. And so the, it's very common in drug money laundering cases to make financial deposits just under that $10,000 requirement to avoid having to fill out these forms that the government can track. We call that structuring or smurfing. Um, and when you're dealing with cashier's checks and you buy a cashier's checks or a money order, if it's 3000 or more, you have to show ID. So they would often go just below 3000 uh, do transactions in cash of just under 3000 and again, just under 10000 So this is what we call in the business smurfing of deposits. So I, I gave Mr. Martinez, sort of the nickname of the Smurf while I was working on this case, because, <laughs> because that's really what he was. He was smurfing money. And did you have at that time any proof of where that money was coming from? No, I didn't. And, and that's what I needed. I needed all my instincts told me this is drug money. And uh, he denied that. I even asked him directly, but I had no way to prove that. I needed someone to be able to testify to that. And 
sure enough, as I'm working with my prosecutor drafting the indictment on the on the advance fee loan counts of the case, we get a walk-in into the FBI office, a walk-in complainant, and it turns out it's the girlfriend of Mario Hernandez, the the business partner, the the, the Colombian guy. Oh, that's so great! Yeah. A, a woman scorned. <laughs> it's the greatest thing to uh, to an investigator is a, a woman scorned. <laughs> Or you know someone who's recently divorced, or anyone who wants to get back at a at a lover. It's a, it's a great thing for for our business. And uh, was that the case? She was trying to get back at him. She was actually. I think she was playing a sort of a sophisticated game where she was trying to leverage giving me information with trying to milk more things from him as as his girlfriend because he he had. Uh, put her up. He, he paid for her apartment. He bought her a car. He's taken her on vacations. And meanwhile, he's still married with kids. And his wife, Janine, she knew about the relationship as well and apparently tolerated it And uh, because he was pretty open about it. And uh, they would, sometimes all three of them would go on vacation together, which I thought was odd. Cozy. But, uh, and I do want to say that we have decided not to use the name of the girlfriend. Yes. And, so. and the reason was because while she was sort of playing this double game, you know, she was also started to receive threats, death threats from people calling on the phone with disguised voices saying, you got to be careful, stop talking to the FBI. And one morning uh, she found a headless Barbie doll on her doorstep <laughs> and, uh, a Barbie doll was sort of appropriate because she had blonde hair, you know, so there was, uh, she took that as a death threat and, uh, she had an on again, off again relationship with Mario. So she was, you know, one day she would get, be getting threats and the next day he'd be over there taking her out to fancy restaurants and, and asking her what she wanted, you know, like, do you want money? <laughs> do you want to, do you want me to get divorced? Do you want to get married? You know, he would talk to her like that. And, uh, she was, kind of playing playing both sides of the game and um anyway she ended up cooperating in my investigation but once she told mario that she had talked to the fbi he he never really trusted her again so she wasn't really useful in getting him to admit that he was laundering drug money but she did pick up enough while she was with him to know that that's what he was doing even though he never really explicitly said that to her so for example once they became romantically involved he hired her to work for his little, I would call it a front company. It was a dinnerware importation company in Salt Lake. And she came aboard and, and uh, she said the company didn't really do much business. But every once in a while, Mario would show up and they'd have a lot of cash to deposit into their bank accounts. So what, what he would actually do, believe it or not, would he would drive around with a, a canvas duffel bag full of a half a million dollars in cash. And they would drive around the valleys in, in Utah and just smurf money into banks all day long for days on end. And so they would visit multiple banks and he would count out, actually it was Janine, his wife, who counted out the cash and labeled it and marked it and made sure it was under 10000 And he would give it to her and she would walk into a bank and deposit that money into the whatever account he, he told her to put it into. How many bank accounts did he have under his control? He had at least a half a dozen, and but the the funny thing was it was his partner Tomas Martinez, a Spanish guy who had hundreds 
because he registered companies for all his victims in his advance fee loan scheme. Part of his scheme was to tell them they needed to open a, their business in Utah to receive the loan. So we not only incorporated all these foreign companies in Utah as pretty much shell companies because they did no business in, in America, and he opened bank accounts for a bunch of them. And so they use these accounts to launder drug money, which is kind of a brilliant scheme. I don't know how intentional or planned out that was, but that's what they ended up doing. So they would deposit money into those accounts as well. And so while all that was going on, I'm working on the forfeiture application, trying to get her to get me some good recordings from, from the girlfriend. And finally, I got enough to at least indict Tomas Martinez on the advance fee loan scheme charges. So he gets indicted and arrest day comes and and I, I go and arrest him. And uh, finally, after all those sessions of talking to him, he, he's ready to tell me, you know, what's really going on and, and admits to having, you know, previously when I interviewed him, he told me, oh, yeah, he made plenty of legitimate loans, but he just couldn't remember who they were to. So finally, now after his arrest, he admits he'd never made a loan, that all that was a scam and that now he was indeed laundering drug money for Colombians. So now I finally had an insider who was admitting to it and, and willing to cooperate with me again. And can you explain his motivation for cooperating? Well, the way I explained it to him after I arrested him, you know, and we knew each other fairly well at that point when I came to arrest him, I tried like I did with all my cases to treat him with a certain amount of respect, especially in front of his family when I come knocking on his door at six in the morning to arrest him you know, in front of his wife and kids. And, you know, like I didn't handcuff him in front of them. And, and I treated him with respect. And when we got to the office, I let him read the indictment. And the indictment, I, I think it was 26 counts. It was pretty thorough. And so he knew, I told him, hey, the gig's up. <laughs> we got you. We got you good. And you're looking at a lot of jail. But, you know, there's a couple things that can help you out here. One, you tell me, the truth. You tell me what's going on. You admit to what you've done. And if you do that, I can tell the judge that you cooperated with this investigation. And then you become eligible for a, a possible downward departure from your sentence. And then the second thing you can do is be proactive and work with me uh, because I know you're working with Mario Hernandez, the Colombian guy. And if you work with me and you provide substantial assistance to this investigation, we can possibly get you an even bigger reduction off your sentence by giving the government that substantial assistance. So I kind of hit him with that double pitch. And of course, he, he went for both because when people are in that situation, they, they'd much rather stay outside of jail and work with me as opposed to go straight to jail and, and, and do the hard time. So, yes, sounds like a good deal. Before he starts to cooperate, Mm -hmm. How much information do you have on Mario Hernandez? I have a pretty good amount based on what his girlfriend's telling me and now based on what Tomas Martinez, his partner's telling me. But I know that once I seized that money from Tomas's office, the $60,000, the Colombians pretty much stopped doing business with him because they didn't, obviously didn't want any more of their money seized. So he was kind of out of it now. And, but I knew Mario was based on the financial subpoenas I was issuing and looking at. He was still very much in the game, but Tomas was not. So now, you know, once 
Tomas was sort of wrapped up. Mario became obviously the next target of this case. And he's the one I was looking for because Tomas's connections with who he was getting the cash from, he really couldn't contact them again. They had cut him off because they knew the FBI had seized some of that money from him and it was their money. But because these two guys were such good scam artists, they did a, a pretty brazen thing with the, the forfeiture announcement that we that the government sends to someone after money is seized from them. So they got an official government letter explaining that $59,367 was seized, blah, blah, blah. Well, they took this letter and they, like good con artists, they changed it to, instead of 59000 to 590,000 and change. And then they showed that letter to the Colombians and as if the government seized over half a million dollars from them. And, and they explained, hey, look, the, the FBI came and seized this money from us, thinking it was part of Tomas's uh, separate fraud scheme. They didn't, they know nothing about, they told the Colombians, they know nothing about the money laundering. They think this is part of the fraud scheme, but they, they took more than half a million. And wow. so, so Mario and Tomas <laughs> used that letter to keep a half a million dollars of the drug money for themselves, because normally they only get like a seven to ten percent of it of the money they move. So they were pretty bold and and ripping off the Colombians they were working with. I, I definitely agree with that. My goodness, yeah. what a con! Yeah. Yes. So that was that was quite impressive. But with Martinez's cooperation, now I'm learning about a third character in Utah who's involved in this, and his name was Jairo Venegas. And he was also from Colombia, a friend of Mario Hernandez's. They knew each other in Bogota. And this guy, Jairo Venegas, was also a church official in Bogota. He was a Mormon bishop there. And so he spends about half his time in Colombia and half his time in Salt Lake City with Mario. So according to Martinez, he's also heavily involved and is indeed the, the contact the link to the Colombians. And so I get this information and I'm really moving forward, building my case against Mario and both the girlfriend and Mr. Martinez also tell me that Mario's wife, Janine, is heavily involved. She's sort of the accountant of the operation and heavily involved in the, in the money laundering as well. And that they all are fully aware that the money that they're moving for the Colombians is drug money, which is important, as you know, in our business to prove intent that they have to, to charge money laundering. They have to know that it's the proceeds of illegal activity. So in the middle of all that, Mario and Janine are starting to feel some of the heat and they move to California. But I'm still, quote unquote, hot on the trail. So they move to California. I submit another substantial prosecutor report to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Utah, get an indictment. I forget how many counts. But I think it was almost 100 counts now against Mario and Janine Hernandez for, for money laundering and, and structuring deposits and stuff like that. So I do the same thing. I, I, I get an arrest warrant and a search warrant, and I show up at their new house outside of San Francisco I'm sure they probably don't understand how the FBI works, and they're thinking, "Hey, we left you in Utah." Yeah, and they, they they thought they were home free because a lot of this was taking taking quite a bit of time. You know, by the time I get to their house in in Orinda, California, it's January of 2002 now. And you started this in 1996. Correct. Wow. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, and as you know, we we don't have the luxury of working one case at a time. So. I had many other cases at the same time, and including a, 
it wasn't ever called a major case, but I was doing the Olympic bribery case in Salt Lake, which took up a lot of my time. Now, that's a, a third case that I'm going to have to have you come back on to talk about. But, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. Have that, that's well, a, quite a story uh, of yeah, its own. Yeah. yeah, we'll do that next year, but uh, yeah. it sounds fascinating. Yes. But, and but, in the meantime, but, I, I was transferred to the, the Joint Terrorism Task Force just, just before 9-11 because the Winter Olympics were coming to Salt Lake. But I made a deal with the bosses of the office that I wanted to keep this one drug money laundering case because I actually tried to pawn it off on the drug squad and they wouldn't take it (laughs) because the drug squad supervisor actually told me when I told him what I had, that I had Colombians laundering money in Utah. He just didn't flat out, didn't believe me and said, no, the only people doing drugs in in Utah, it's Mexicans and and it's not money. and, And he said, well, we don't understand money on this squad anyway. You keep it. So I kept it. And so after I got to San Francisco and arrested Mario and Janine, you know, Mario was a very smart guy. He had a master's degree. He had worked for PepsiCo in the past. And he was a pretty sophisticated businessman as opposed to Tomas Martinez. So I knew he was going to be a tough nut to crack because I'd met him once before when I seized that first $60,000 from Mr. Martinez. He pretended that was his money and it was a loan. And so I had interviewed him about that before, and I had asked him if that was drug money back then in in '98, and he said uh, he said I don't, I don't want to talk about anything except that loan without my attorney. So I knew he was going to be a tough nut to crack. He was a smart guy. So sure enough, when after I arrest him, I put him in the box, and uh, he said, uh, "What about my attorney?" I said, "Okay, we'll get your attorney." And the interview was the interrogation was over within five minutes. But then it came time to talk to his wife, Janine, and I uh, sat her down and I said, hey, look, I know what's going on. I know you guys are moving drug money, and now you, you got to think about your kids. You need to think about your future right now. And I gave her my best spiel about the benefits of cooperating with the government. And bottom line is she cooperated, and I got a written confession, written statement from her. And after about two hours in the room with her, when she walked out, we were in a tiny little police station in Orinda, California on a Sunday afternoon when everyone was watching the Oakland Raiders play. And, and uh, so Mario saw, saw me walk her out after two hours and he knew she had given it up. So now suddenly he wants to talk too. <laughs> so I had to get uh, the family plan. Yeah. I had to get permission from the prosecutor to, you know, because he invoked his right to counsel to make sure enough time had elapsed where he could a- approach to me of his own free will, which I got that all signed off on. And, Anyway, he admitted to it as well, to laundering money for Colombians and also signed a statement. Here's the catch. He said, I, I don't know how much you know, Jerry, about how drug money laundering works in the United States with, with drugs coming from South America. But he told me, hey, I'm due back in New York, pick up a million dollars next week. And that's when I knew uh, that, yeah. that was going to be my million dollars. Uh, million dollars. Nice for you. Yeah. So I, I got him signed up. And you asked a question, how much I know about it. Remember, I'm practically an expert because I watched two seasons of Ozark. (laughs) Right. So the way it works is guys like Mario in America do what we call money pickups. So he was what I would sort of call a pickup artist, whereas Tomas Martinez was Smurf. Mario was more the pickup artist. And the pickup artist is a guy who picks up the cash from the drug dealers from a drug distribution network in the United States and they pick up that money in cash and their job is to get that back to Colombia. 
So there, or the first in the chain of that job. So he was scheduled to do a money pickup in New York that, that next week. So now I've got to get him out of jail, get him signed up with a cooperation agreement and get him to New York. And he had flown to New York so many times doing this. He had rented an apartment on the Upper East Side, a pretty nice apartment in Manhattan. I get him signed up. And sure enough, I'm going to be spending the next week with him in his apartment in Manhattan, waiting for the million dollars to arrive. You know, one thing that that we, because we are both so familiar with all of this that we didn't do, is Mm. kind of explain to everyone why money needs to be laundered. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Well, the, the technique that they were using, which I didn't know what it was called when I was started this investigation, but it's called the Colombian black market peso exchange mechanism for laundering drug money. It's actually a very brilliant system, and I'll explain how it works. I'll give you a real example from the case. So the way it works is they have these guys called peso brokers in Colombia, and a peso broker is just a financial middleman who puts himself out there in Colombia, and he has relationships with legitimate Colombian businessmen who happen to import goods from the United States. And he's got relationships with drug dealers and drug exporters and cartels who have all this cash in the United States that they want to get back to Colombia as pesos because US dollar is no good in Colombia. For the drug organizations, it, it's a big deal getting that money back. Because believe it or not, all those fives, tens, twenties, all that money is actually bulkier and heavier than the cocaine they just sent into the United States. And that's the vulnerable part of their operation. They got to get that cash back to Colombia and convert it into pesos for them to become a profitable billion dollar enterprise, which is what it is. So just to give an example. So in this case, I have a peso broker in Colombia who's got, again, relationships with legitimate Colombian businessmen and the drug cartels and drug exporters. So to give you a real example, in this case, there was a guy, his name was Jose Moreno, and he owned a chain of hardware stores throughout Colombia. Legitimate business, just hardware stores. But he would buy goods from Stanley Tools in the United States, and he ends up owing Stanley Tools International in Miami to make the numbers easy, let's say he owes them $100,000 for a big shipment of tools he just got and distributed through his chain of hardware stores. So he has this debt of US dollars in Miami in the United States. So the peso broker would approach this legitimate businessman and go, hey, you know that 100000 you owe in the United States? I'll take care of that. You know, I'll pay that money off. All you got to do is give me the equivalent of 80000 US dollars in Colombian pesos. And so the Colombian business guy is thinking, wow, I get a 20% discount. Uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, here's here's 80,000 pesos. And then the peso broker would would give those that 80,000 pesos to the drug dealers. So now they're paid. And then the peso broker would call someone like Mario Hernandez in the United States and say, hey, you know that $100,000 you did on that money pickup on the streets of New York last week? I want you to put that into your bank accounts, and then I want you to send a wire transfer from your phony shell company account in Utah to Stanley Tools International for the account of Jose Moreno, and then that account gets paid off. So 
it's a brilliant system because the U.S. dollars and drug cash never has to leave the United States, and it's very hard to detect. The only sort of red flag in the system is it's not Jose Moreno who's paying Jose Moreno's debt at, at Stanley Tools, but does Stanley Tools really care? And the answer is no, they don't. They got paid. They're not going to report that. They don't care. And so this kind of this system is called the Colombian Black Market Peso Exchange, and it was very successful for many, many years. It adapts and, and changes as law enforcement tries to shut these avenues of laundering money down. Well, somebody like the, the tool shop owner, mm-hmm. he doesn't care because he's getting paid, but yeah. does he know? He, he can claim sort of a willful blindness. He could claim not to know that it's drug money that's paying off his debt and Stanley tools and whether or not he knows in his heart and mind, I don't know. You know, he just knows this, this government regulations and it's difficult to get the, the flow of dollars and pesos between the United States and Colombia has a lot of restrictions because of all the, the drug money laundering. So he's got to get a, around some of these regulations and he's being offered a, a good deal. And so he takes it, but that's how it's done. And it all looks legitimate, you know, except there's a guy in Utah wiring money to a, a business account in Miami that's got nothing to do with that business account in Miami. But he, he gets his instructions from this peso broker, who again is the middleman in Colombia and says, okay, I want you to go to the McDonald's on 79th Street and the, you're, you're going to meet a guy named Pedro. And the code word is X and they'll give him a code word. And these two guys meet, they meet for less than three minutes. And Mario's given a, a little backpack or a small suitcase and the guy walks away after he says the code word, and in that suitcase or backpack is anywhere from a hundred thousand in cash to four hundred and fifty thousand in cash in one little bag, and uh, that's how it's done. And then Mario takes this money back to his apartment because he goes to New York so often to do this, and uh, he he would actually stuff it into FedEx boxes and send it to himself in Utah, and then fly back home, <laughs> and then start the whole smurfing operation with various people he had helping him deposit that money, exchange it in from cash into money orders or cashier's checks, and just deposit it all and aggregate it onto these accounts where he could then wire it based on the instructions from the, the drug dealers back in Colombia. It sounds kind of complicated that you need a lot of good record keeping, which of course is great, yeah. for, great for us as investigators. Yeah, so it's complicated. So once you know he was ready to cooperate with me after I arrested him in California. I, I take him to New York. We go to his apartment. And then since I'm in New York, obviously I need New York's FBI's concurrence to do operational stuff in their territory. And I tell him what I've got. And I've worked with them before because I, I knew Mario had been going there quite a bit. And uh, I, I get an agent helping me on the ground there named Mike McGarity. I don't know if you know Mike, but great agent, knew what pickups was all about. He worked, that's when New York had a money laundering squad, C39. So Mike's helped me out. Mike now is the assistant director of the counterterrorism division for the FBI. So he's a great guy, very successful guy, good agent. So Mike and I are helping and drug dealers don't work on a normal business schedule. You know, when he's told the million dollars is coming, it's Oh, yeah, it'll be there tomorrow. And then tomorrow, oh, one more day. So we're playing the waiting game. Meanwhile, my supervisor on the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Salt Lake is calling me every day. You know, we're, we're about three weeks from the beginning of the Olympics in Salt Lake. And 
even though he's got a thousand TDY agents to help him out in Utah, he's screaming for me to get back to Utah because he thinks I'm so important to whatever efforts going on there, which I disagree with. But before we could do the first pickup, I have to go back to Salt Lake. So Mike McGarity <laughs> ends up with Mario picking up the first pickup is uh, he's given a small bag of $80,000, which is pretty small. It was supposed to be a million. Yes. Well, it's, it's not always in one lump. So, and each one of these pickups, it, it could be a different peso broker. It could be a different, a different drug operation. Each one of these pickups has its own sort of provenance. There's a way how, how it, you know, what drug shipment that money came from. Anyway, the next day, they pick up 400000 on the streets of New York. The day after that, he's told, uh, and this was true for Mario, he would do pickups all over the place, Miami, Chicago, Houston. He's told to fly to Dallas. He flies to Dallas the next day after that, still in January of 2002. And he picks up 445000 in a Denny's parking lot in Dallas. And so pretty soon we got our million bucks. And of course... I don't know how much you know about how the DEA does similar operations like this, but sometimes they actually facilitate the laundering of that money back to Colombia to supposedly try to identify more subjects and stuff like that. But I was not about to let this money walk. So I seized this million dollars. But knowing how dangerous this game is, now I know that Mario's life could be in danger. If this money doesn't show up back in Colombia where, where they're telling him to put it, you know, he could be in big trouble. So I come up with a scenario to try to basically save his life and his family and get them moved out of where they are into a safer location and, and a cover story. And basically the cover story is we fake, a, I give him some doctored, doctored up seizure documents to make it look like, you know, we did seize all the money, but to make it sort of look like that they were seized in such a way where he wasn't cooperating with the FBI. That's the part we don't want them to know about. So we made it look like it was just bad luck. And he, some surveillance picked up, you know, one of the guys who dropped off the money to him. And we made it look like it wasn't his fault. He wasn't cooperating. They just seized the money. And does that work? Because he's actually seized money from several different handoffs. <laughs> I know. So now there are a bunch of people bunch of angry people in Colombia who want this money. And fortunately for me, they all use the same peso broker, a guy in Bogota, whose name I don't want to mention either. So as I'm learning all this from Mario, he tells me where Jairo is. I, I arrest Jairo. I also flip him and get a signed statement from Jairo Venegas, the, the, the guy who was back and forth between Salt Lake and Colombia, who was working with him, laundering the money. And he was doing a whole separate money laundering operation involving Spain and London at the same time. And he cooperated with that. So I have a whole nother spinoff going that way. And while we were in New York, that week in New York, waiting for those first pickups, I had Mario doing uh, what we call in the FBI consensual monitoring, meaning every communication, every phone call he had with the people in Colombia, we were recording it. And we recorded over 60 conversations in that that week before those pickups. So based on that evidence, we started to identify who were the people on the other side of that phone in Colombia, because that's, that's where I wanted to go, take out the whole organization. It was a painstaking, long process of just IDing these people, because, you know, everyone was using nicknames and, 
and uh, phones were not registered to their true names. And, you know, it, it was not an easy thing, but we did identify the main peso broker they were using. And because a million dollars of the money he provided to Mario was seized in the United States, he had to eventually flee Colombia because his life was in danger. So he ends up going to Spain and we eventually opened the Mike McGarity opened the New York spinoff of this Operation Utah Powder in New York, and we indicted him in New York and had him arrested in Spain and extradited back to the States, and he cooperated with us. And then we identified who, through the help of Mario Hernandez, who now is cooperating with me, we identified who owns that first original money that I seized way back in 98, that $60,000 from Tomas Martinez's house, it actually belonged to a, a heroin trafficker in Bogota. And we identified him and issued a provisional arrest warrant in Colombia for him. He ends up getting arrested by the Colombians. He cooperates in Colombia through our Resolution 6 office down there, which is DEA, FBI, working narcotics in Colombia. and. He gives up a shipment of 13 kilos of heroin that's bound from Miami. So the FBI is able to seize that, take down a whole heroin distribution ring in Miami based off his cooperation, and then he gets extradited back to Utah, where I fly back, and by now I'm at headquarters, I fly back to Utah to interrogate him and debrief him on his cooperation. And so I finally have, you know, the top of the chain, sort of a drug trafficker extradited back from Colombia. And here I am, you know, interviewing him. And this was in, so this is 2004. So almost eight years into it, I finally got to sort of the top of the chain, the drug trafficker extradited back into Utah. And, and he's now cooperating and telling me who's in his network. And of course, there are links to the AUC and the FARC, the two opposing uh, designated terrorist groups and the and the fighting down in Colombia back then in the in the nineties and beyond. Could you tell us more about that? Because I did read something in, in a couple of the newspaper articles that I will make sure I have links to in the uh, the show notes uh, about yeah. the connection with these terrorist groups. So there were there were multiple connections. That was the first one, but the main one was from another drug trafficker we were able to arrest in Colombia and extradite, whose name I don't want to mention because he's also cooperating now. So he gets extradited and he begins his cooperation again, like this other guy in Colombia. And while he's cooperating in Colombia prior to extradition, because that's a long legal process, he is able to allow us to seize over $7 million worth of property in Colombia based on his cooperation. And then once he arrives in the United States, he's continuing to cooperate and we're able to seize a large cache of, of weapons, AK-47s, uh, RPGs, a whole lot of weapons that were being used by one of those paramilitary groups, the AUC in Colombia. And I think that the article was mentioning, I think it was a quote from you, that yeah. the terrorist groups were involved because they were providing protection to the drug cartel? Correct, yeah. They weren't necessarily growing or processing their narcotics, but they were allowing the manufacturers of these drugs to operate in their territory that they controlled and to 
to they would have to pay a fee a, a protection money to these paramilitary groups in order to continue to operate in these sort of lawless zones of Colombia where they process the drugs once he provided that information we got those the weapons seized he he was in touch with two of he was a he was the head of his own drug trafficking organization or DTO as we called them and the two guys on the ground who led Colombian law enforcement to that that weapons cache were both found executed in Cali, Colombia like about a week later. It's a rough business down there. But we definitely identified links on on many sides of this to either the FARC or the AUC and one peso broker that we indicted and and also had him extradited to the United States. He actually was uh, working for another drug trafficking organization, a guy who lived in one of Pablo Escobar's houses or, or Pablo Escobar's house in, in Bogota. And uh, and this house was uh, conveniently equipped with a, a jail cell in the basement. Anyway, there, there are a lot of a lot of interesting side stories, but the, the main thing is the Utah case grew a big spin-off in New York and Miami. And once Mario's cooperation was kind of dried up, you know, he was sentenced and pled guilty and and uh, he was looking at over 20 years for money laundering, but they, he was sentenced to about seven years because of his cooperation. But I took all that bank information where, where he sent money based on the drug traffickers' instructions, and I went around the United States and seized as many of those bank accounts as I could. And we, we got another, another $320,000 we seized that were still left in some of those bank accounts. So we got some of that money back. And what about his wife, Janine? She got, I think, about five years time because she was she was pretty hardcore. <laughs> she was actually, I remember during her interrogation, she was actually proud of uh, what good a job they did in getting the money back to Colombia because she told me that the, the drug trafficking organizations had a hard time finding reliable people in the United States who would get the money back to them you know, as agreed to with the percentages, you know, that they could take for their services. And she was proud of the fact that she was able to launder, you know, basically her, her conspiracy, there was about $5 million they laundered in total, her and Mario, even though I only sees a small fraction that just uh, under 2 million. She was she was pretty proud of the job she had done. So she, she was very, uh, you know, I, I would say hardcore. Wow. And what about the girlfriend? And Tomas. Tomas ended up with, he also got about five years based on his cooperation. And then he was extradited back to Spain, where I know there was another arrest warrant waiting for him for some of his old advance fee victims back there. So I know he did his time in Lompoc in California, and I don't, I don't know how much time he did once he got back to Spain. But uh, we're, not, we're not pen pals like I am with Carlos the Jackal, <laughs> but um, I don't know what happened to him. But uh, I did exchange some letters with Mario and Jairo while they were in prison. I, I've always treated subjects in my cases like human beings and, and tried to treat them right. And, and, and just about everyone in this case flipped and ended up working with me. So you, you have these intense personal relationships with these people, you know, and you're asking them to do things where, you know, they are risking their own personal safety to to forward your investigation so there's 
you know, the, the, the relationship gets a little complicated. There's some bonds that get formed there, but in the end, you know, you, you don't lose sight of who they really are. And, and, you know, I believe that they really didn't learn their lesson because once they knew I was onto them in Salt Lake, they moved to California and kept doing the same thing, but with a different group. Part of me agreed that they went to jail for the, for the amount of time they did. I thought it was a, a reasonable sentence that the judge gave them. I know that, that TV uses creative license and they over-dramatize and sensationalize things. Yeah. But one of the things about that TV show Ozark <laughs> is the amount of violence. I mean, mm. people are being killed every yeah. you know couple of seconds. <laughs> and so, and so I, I, I am kind of curious about... You know, when Mario and, and, and Tomas and Janine were in jail, mm-hmm. you know, if that was a concern, that uh, the drug cartel knowing Absolutely. of their cooperation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's somewhat exaggerated in Hollywood, the amount of people who can get killed in federal prison in the United States based on what a cartel in Colombia wants. But I guess it's theoretically possible. But w- when people are sent away to federal prison, there are ways to try to give those prisons that information and to try to keep them as safe as possible. And and especially while they're more our responsibility while they're working for us as our cooperators and our sources, you know, we, we do our best to keep them safe. For instance, Tomas Martinez, right before he went to jail, he tried to go straight and go back to his original occupation in Spain, which he, he came from a family of bakers and he tried to open a bakery in Salt Lake, you know, while he was, cooperating with me and while he was awaiting sentencing and one night someone came by and did a drive-by at his bakery and shot the whole place up at night so no one was there no one was hurt but there's definitely that risk of violence in in all these cases and and he was threatened in other ways too during his cooperation as was mario's girlfriend and in the girlfriend scenario she actually she didn't want to be relocated or or she she turned down all the things I, I told her she should do for her own safety because she still maintained this sort of on-again, off-again relationship with Mario, and she was convinced she, he would never hurt her. So, and he never did. <laughs> yeah, there was a time when uh, I remember having to move Mario and Janine out of their house one night before we had that seizure scenario work down, and the threats were real. And again, those two people who cooperated with that head of that drug trafficking organization in Colombia, when we found those weapons and seized that $7 million of property, the two people in his organization who, who helped us at his direction, they were both killed. And he, that drug trafficker, by the way, was definitely associated with the Norte Valley uh, cartel. And that was the money from that Dallas pickup, the 450000 in the Denny's parking lot in Dallas. That was that organization. So, you know, I was pretty proud of the fact that based on this little advance fee loan scheme case in Salt Lake that my training agent said stay away from. I ended up getting, you know, two drug traffickers, four peso brokers extradited from Colombia. And as recently as that drug trafficking uh, leader, he pled guilty in New York in 2011. And that New York spinoff was not closed until April of 2016. So a 20, it was a turned out to be like a 20 year case and it was put into pending and active with only one fugitive, one peso broker left uh, outstanding, one warrant left outstanding. But I was pretty proud of the fact that we did all that from such humble, humble beginnings. 
Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Thank goodness that you, uh, you know, you're kind of hard headed and you wanted to proceed with the advance fee scheme case, even though you were told that uh, it wasn't going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great agent too. He was very, uh, inspirational to me. And I, I just kind of wanted to, I don't know if I wanted to prove myself or I don't know, maybe I'm just a contrarian, but, uh, I took it as a challenge and I took that case as far as it would go. Because of that case, the the FBI uh, asked me to develop a, a money laundering presentation, and, and I actually used this case as a scenario to train law enforcement literally all around the world. I did it in Brazil, in, in El Salvador, in Egypt, in, in Budapest. I, I've taught this these lessons on how to identify black market peso exchange transactions to, to law enforcement all around the world on behalf of the Bureau. And it was a great pleasure for me to do that, to share what I learned so other law enforcement could hopefully do it without taking as long as it took me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have all the tricks now. You, you, you know all the, uh, the shortcuts, so that's fantastic. And I don't know if you remember this, but you mentioned to me during our last interview that you were going to write a fiction. You were going to fictionalize this mm. case and uh, write a novel about a crime novel about it. Have you started on yes. that yet? I have not. I'm I'm actually still writing the the true story of these cases of sort of my FBI career. I'm writing a, a book about that. I'm about halfway through that, but once I finish this true sort of a memoir of my time in the FBI, then I will write this fictional account and hopefully do it in a, in a unique way that, because I know there's a, a ton of fictionalized FBI books out there, but I, I think I have a, an idea that might make it a little unique, even though it's a, a Colombian drug trafficking story. The way I want to tell it is it will be as if reading an FBI case file. Oh, that does sound interesting. All right. So don't forget First, when your memoir is done, and then when the crime fiction is done, don't forget to let me know. I, I hope to still be here podcasting, and definitely one of my goals is to always bring to everyone stories about the FBI written by FBI mm -hmm. agents. So yeah. I'll add you to the FBI reading resource. Thank you. And, and I really appreciate your podcast. It's great to hear true stories of so many other agents and the, some of the amazing work they've done because, you know, a lot of those cases never got what I think is the publicity they deserved back in the day. And to hear those stories, they're just incredible. Yours is an example of that. Oh, thank you. We're at the end. And what I always like to do, as you know, from last time is to give my guests the last word. So what would you like to say? Well, I would just like to say that if there's anyone out there thinking of a career in the FBI, that I would encourage you to apply because it was for 21 years, it was a job I woke up and uh, look forward to going to work every day. And uh, I know a lot of people out there can't say that about their work. For sure, I, I enjoyed it. And, and we need good people. We have good people, as you can uh, tell from Jerry's podcast. There's a lot of extraordinary work being done, uh, both domestically and overseas, as I can attest to in the FBI. And if you have any interest in that work, I would really encourage you to apply because we don't just hire former law enforcement and former military. You can come from a wide array of backgrounds, especially now we're hiring. If you have certain language abilities or computer skills, or like I had a, a background in finance or accounting, we could definitely, uh, or the FBI could definitely use you, and I would encourage you to go ahead and apply. 
And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Eugene Casey. You'll find several articles about Operation Utah Powder. You'll see a list of all the results, convictions, indictments, and forfeitures, and a couple of photos of the subjects of this case. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. Within the next couple of weeks, FBI Retired Case File Review will surpass 2 million downloads, but I still need your help to spread the word even further so that more people know who the FBI is and what the FBI does. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you today. I'm still working on my next book, FBI and Film and Fiction. But I do want to remind you of my crime novels, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers, part of my Philadelphia Corruption Squad series featuring Special Agent Carrie Wheeler. The books are available at Amazon.com as ebooks, paperbacks, and Pay to Play is an audiobook. I hope you consider picking up a copy for yourself or for someone you know who loves crime fiction. They make great holiday gifts. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.